Welcome everyone to the Super Duper Music Podcast. This is a special New Year's edition and I'm here as always with Matthias Halvorsen and I am myself, Stephen Walter. Hi Matthias. Hi Stephen. How are you? I'm good. I'm in the beautiful snowy country of Iceland with snow and Christmas lights and everything. So it's beautiful. And you? Uh, I'm in Berlin where it's, it is beautiful. It's nice and sunny and uh, blue sky, but I actually don't remember having a snowy New Year's or even snowy Christmas uh, since many, many years. But maybe that's um, either that's global warming or the whole thing about white Christmas is a, is a total myth in Germany. I, actually, I don't remember ever experiencing white Christmas in Germany. Anyway, we're not talking about, <laughs> we're not talking about the weather. We're talking about in, uh, the, the year, which uh, is topic of this super topic special episode. It's the end of the year episode, as it were. Uh, we're talking on uh, December 31st and hope to pipe this, uh, pump this out uh, pretty much immediately. So um, happy New Year's, everyone. Happy New Year, Stephen. Yeah, and you too. You're included in everyone. So what's the deal? We're going to talk today about everything in slightly bigger terms. Our segments relate to things of the year, as it were. So I have a technology of the year. Okay, starts. I think the following technology of year, and we've been talking about this, I think for myself is, ta-da, the blockchain. <laughs> and once again, here we go. Do you remember your explanation? Like, could you repeat? No, it like now? I forgot. Or I, I, I talked in the, a couple episodes ago. I presented the blockchain, and I think um, I did it to some um, some success, but I, I I I really fail. I don't have it like as an elevator pitch. I fail to really integrate the knowledge of what what it means. But I do think in a time where many central entities and particularly trust in general is highly disrupted and, and challenged because um, central institutions like central banks or even, even governments and um, many of these um, stabilizing bodies have become very fragile. So we need to figure out some way to establish a universal trust in transactions and in in the way we set up systems. So I do think the blockchain, however vague it still may be for myself, uh, first of all, but I think there are very few people who really actually understand the implications. But as far as I do understand them, I think they are um, massively disruptive because they, the blockchain provides a system of trust that is encoded in, in the technology itself. So... Um, can create a decentralized way of establishing transactions and platforms and everything. And that's that's pretty big, both for money and for things like provenance. So where does stuff come from? You can have an entirely secure way of tracking stuff. And ownership also, digital ownership. Yeah, Absolutely, ownership, how to really re-examine and rethink a copyright and all that. So I think that's That's really big, at least in my naive and uh, dilettante uh, mind, it has come up in this year, even though I do know that it has been around for, for, for some time, but I think it's really breaking through on many levels. Yeah, for music, it really started sticking its nose out this year with audio music and everything. Right. Audio music is a, is a startup that tries to solve copyright issues with blockchain mechanisms. Haven't you with your, um, let's call it a startup, uh, <laughs> 
mm-hmm. with you. Matthias is thinking of this label backlash. And uh, haven't you been examining also blockchain and how to use it? Is it um, in any way interesting for you guys? Yeah, I, it's definitely very interesting. Right now, the question is how uh, usable it is in terms of practical listening for the audience and how it how it connects to different platforms and But that seems actually to be working very easily. There's now, especially in Berlin, it's Berlin is like a, a city which invested a lot of money in blockchain startups. And that attracted um, companies also to Berlin from all over the world who works with blockchain. So we went to a few meetings there and met some people. And I, it's going really quick and a lot of solutions are coming forward extremely quickly. So that's... I think a lot of fun. You had also, when we, you did the blockchain uh, segment, we got a few corrections there after. Did you grasp those? or We absolutely did. I, I got some things fundamentally very wrong. I mean, not fundamentally, more like uh, tangentially. I'll just look it up. Yeah, so Peter Schmidt was very nice to point out that I, I got some things very wrong in uh, talking about the blockchain in episode number 16. Um, he says, quote, a block is not a transaction, but a block of all transactions. So I was wrong about that. I said um, that a block is one single transaction. A block is uh, rather a, yeah, the, the sum of, of all transactions within a predetermined time frame. In Bitcoin, this means 10 minutes. Bitcoin is one of the applications of blockchain. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing is, I, I, which I got entirely wrong, is um, the maximum amount of Bitcoins ever in creation is 21 million. I said something like 80 million or something. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry about that. But anyway, I think the blockchain is really big. I was thinking about this. This I didn't get to this conclusion easily um, because there are many other things, great, super interesting things uh, going on in virtual reality and um, all that. The other competing technology of the year is certainly artificial intelligence. I think that's that's in general just extremely huge, but I don't see it breaking through in this year in any really particular way. It's in a linear or maybe slightly going exponential learning curve, but I have the feeling that blockchain really broke through in many levels, huge amounts of startups coming up. So that's my technology of the year. Ah, beautiful. Just to segue from your um, artificial intelligence, one news item that I wanted to use last time, but I didn't get around to it. It was a research project. Now I don't have all the details, but they did one of these things where they feed in all the works of a composer and have the artificial intelligence then learn to compose music in this style based on the previous compositions. And there was a a group of students who did this with Bach over a two-year period. They fed in all choral works by Bach and then had this algorithm produce new um, pieces than in in the same style. And then they had musicians look at this and judge whether or not they thought these pieces were by Bach or not. Mm. 51% of people got it correctly. So it's basically like a 50-50 chance of people spotting which one is Bach and which one is the machine or artificially intelligence produced uh, piece of music. So that's, of course, uh, a huge... I think that's a very big deal in itself. It absolutely is. (laughs) You can get it to chance. But then the really groundbreaking number was then when people were then confronted with only one piece of music and they would have to say is this Bach or artificial intelligence a 75% of uh, 75% of them would judge Bach to be produced by the artificial intelligence so they would okay. also <laughs> fail on that level and that's, that's even weird. more interesting yeah no that's absolutely fascinating and I think um, we also talked about this this year several times 
uh, there's really interesting applications coming up too. Once you really harness big data and the and the all the incredible amount of information we can gather about how art is created, you can build all kinds of really interesting also cyborg-like situations where creators and composers and artists work together with the computer to come come up with really original stuff. I think this is all really good. But but I think it's going to be one of the big questions we're going to face because in painting you already have it. You can have a a portrait made in, in Van Gogh style or and these things and, and who then does this is it like an artist then owns his style rather mm. than the painting or right. and the, in music we're going to have the same thing I think very very soon where you could have a Beethoven created 10th symphony based yeah. on the progression of style from the first nine exactly and and that has very fundamental it, it, it expresses fundamental concerns about also authorship and and the whole idea of um, of scarcity which is big in in classical music i mean beethoven only has nine symphonies and that's why i mean they're all they're great but what if beethoven had x amount of symphonies because you can just emulate it with a click of the mouse that yeah, would exactly. change the, the the value of a bit and that, all that so that's that's many interesting questions coming up there okay what do you've got what i've got yeah uh, I'm sure you have some really awesome thing of the year, Matthias. What is it? No, okay. So it, it it's a New Year's episode. One one thing that I I um, I found is it's a news item that we missed, which is I think which is how people from outside see the genre or can see the genre compared to how we often view it ourselves. Because within classical music circles, we always talk about classical music is a very rich genre. It's so extreme uh, in terms of the different kinds of things it can be mm-hmm. when you have things um, like uh, Senakis and then Mozart and then all these different kinds of instruments and then you have aleatoric principles and with new music the whole thing really opens up and it makes it hard to pinpoint what is classical music exactly and then it's fun to see from the outside how that particular question is approached. This was seen very much in the 2016 ARIA Awards in Australia. It's it's an award for fine arts and artisan uh, awards in music. And that was awarded on October 5th. And they gave their best classical album award of the year to an electro-pop band called Flight Facilities. Okay. And the reason they did this was because in the recording they featured the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, what is even classical or contemporary music today? What does that even... Yeah, because they're also sidestepping the whole issue of, which is actually natural, we will often try to reframe, or I've done this myself, to reframe classical music using the term composed music instead, which is also actually very faulty. Uh, because it implies that other music is not really composed. And of course, when you deal with most other genres, even jazz and pop and rock, everything is very, very composed. And often in more layers than classical music can be when you take in the whole production um, aspect of it. Right, because the classical music is actually in many ways very vaguely composed. Just have some, we have some chicken shit on paper, as it were, and then you know, make, make music out of it. We try to define it in Germany as Kunstmusik, you know, art music, which is at least as troublesome <laughs> as a word because it implies, of course, the other. When does something become art music, and when does it? It's in Germany a very big distinction is this um, this E and U division, you know, ernste und Unterhaltungsmusik. Like uh, so, you have serious music, and then you have uh, entertainment music. 
which yeah. is a ridiculous distinction to make. But uh, I, I, yeah, I, I really struggle with with this terminology and the definitions of what even classical and particularly contemporary music is really even. I think we got to get away from this uh, classical music term because I think that's ridiculous. I mean, first of all, it's confusing because it's a it's a epoch, right? It's a, it's a certain time in history, that, and it's uh, and it's classical. It implies, I think, one of the big problems, namely that it, everything becomes classical immediately. Like by by definition, it's like this classical something that's classical is not necessarily very sexy for a contemporary world. So I think I think terminology matters. I, I just go for just you know music. It's just it's just freaking music. It's not doesn't become classical just because it's written 20 years ago, right? But I do agree there's a problem uh, with the whole... We are at odds with, particularly with the environment around us when it comes to defining what it actually is, where, where the borders are, the boundaries are and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it might be, just as a second note, it might be that this is an issue that all genres feel from the inside, that it's... Um, you know, because yeah, we true. see other genres from the outside and they all might have the same problem from the inside somehow that they're super frustrated that they everybody says electronic music even though that's obviously like yeah it's it's so divided within who knows okay so uh, i have a deep uh deep quandary of the year okay okay i'm sorry i'm sorry for stating all the obvious stuff but i think it is super important this year has been intense in some ways i think because so we had brexit we had the vote of trump we had all kinds of disastrous situations in the near east so uh, 2016 can be can be summarized as a year of political turmoil in in many ways, and I do wonder, as a quandary of the year, as it were, because I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of months, mostly. How the hell can what we do, name music, what can it even contribute to any of this? Because I, I in other words, what is a could a political role of music be because I, I i i there's this huge call for that i mean everybody's like and there's a lot of you know funds opening up for uh, do something with refugees do this do that try to engage uh, in 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 local discussions and all that and that's all well meant but um i really wonder and that boils down to quite philosophical questions of how can music even in general interact or contribute or um, really mean anything in political terms. And I wonder even more if I th- look at other um, genres that are almost by definition extremely political. So you have grunge and hardcore and punk and m- many of these subcultures are extremely political in their orientation and, and, and as it were the kit is political so the kit between the people and the music is a political one and electronic music is in many ways very um, political so 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 classical music is is uh, let's call it classical music classical and contemporary music art music is um, in a weird way very um aloof and of course one could say it's it's very bourgeois and therefore in some way political but I, I I do think it's it's really really hard to say where where our bigger stance is. Uh, maybe we shouldn't start like that. Where, where what do I think could it be? And I think one thing that has become extremely important in this whole uh, troublesome development is the fact that and now it gets quite a little bit cheesy maybe that we need to listen. You know, 
So I have one idea, and I stole it a little bit from German podcaster Jan Böhmermann. He had a similar idea, but I adapted it to, uh, to, to music. So I think one should do something like a, a concert where the only curation design principle is uh, that things that actually really hate each other next to each other in the program. So I don't know what currently hates each other, but I'm sure, I mean, there are all kinds of different subcultures that can't stand each other because they, are, they represent different aesthetics and different lifestyles. So you make a concert where all these things are extremely uh, controversially put together and you just invite all the fans because these are the biggest people, you know, of their, uh, of their world. And therefore you have this very mixed crowd and you just, you just have to listen, you know, you have to have this one festival, one weekend or something where um, people are just forced to listen to each other. And even if they, and they can keep on hating each other afterwards, but you have this sort of situation where you have a concert We have the greatest people of every genre and uh, yeah, the, the lineup is such that just things that always hate each other come after each other. And then you have a situation where people have to listen in some way. And I think that's something that maybe music could do in a sort of a safe space, as it were, create a situation where you can have some kind of exchange of ideas in a, in a different realm in some way, because it seems to not work in real life. I mean, this whole bubble thing is, is big and... Uh, we have a huge trouble actually getting in touch with people of different opinion and maybe music can do that to some extent in a, in a, in a sort of different realm so maybe that's one thing but in general uh, I'm really struggling with the what a political role of, of music or our music in particular could be or if, it, if any uh, yeah you always have these huge uh... <laughs> the first thing uh, I think is a beautiful idea with uh, the concert I think um I think there's a chance some people might start booing each other and stuff, but yeah. you never know. I think it's, it sounds very, very nice. I think one of the strengths of, of genres that have no text often is that it's much more projectable for other kinds of audience, and thus it's, it's easier to enter, which I think is a, one of the strengths of classical music is that it's very yeah, narrative and very kind of as abstractly experience-based. So that it, it's very relatable or possibly relatable for a lot of people if you like you don't expel people by saying something. For instance, if you have you have other genres that are politically active because of the words that they use, we often don't really do that. Of course, the, the whole the whole setup that you start with implies a certain kind of utilitarian approach to music that was something that Juan Williams also had this like music supposed to serve a certain purpose and in times of need music has to also composers like Peter Svasks right yeah like you really view music as a this kind of tool in a certain time yeah. and you shape your music after what you perceive your society needs at that time kind of yeah. and this I, I I it's very beautiful in a way I think especially with of course I'm a huge Juan Williams fan and you're a socialist and I'm a socialist so it's not <laughs> <laughs> It's not an uh, per se. It's not. I'm not negative to that as one field of existence. The other way I would would uh, like as as one approach, but in the other way, I think there's like a lot of quality to the idea that music is supposed to be this sphere where it can be political in the practical sense that that you right. you give people a certain kind of experience and giving these kind of yeah. experiences enhances your spectrum of of, of healing and all this yeah a lot of research on this and i i don't know i i also i like that art in itself could be preoccupied with abstract ideas and ideals and that that there is quality to that field existing in and of itself and just the better you are at that 
just by the very nature of what you're doing, if you're successful at it, would have a certain kind of effect on the people that you're working towards or your listeners. Right. Does that make any sense? Felt it makes perfect sense. It's uh, very, uh, very clever. I, I, <laughs> I, I just, wa- no, absolutely. I just wonder, um, and I agree that the, uh, f- the ph- phenomenology of uh, music itself and great music in particular can just broaden horizons and, and basically make us um, make us better, you know, people of the earth and all that. But um, I do get frustrated sometimes with the sort of rhetoric around classical music being in particular such a world encapsulating artwork, which it is, but it doesn't reflect in the way we, we present or listen to it yeah but it's it's also tr- true it's a good point i didn't mean that we were exclusive in that way of course l- right. all other genres work with the same things I, I was talking more about the the idea of wordless music often and right in general yeah. yeah i mean it's just you sometimes hear these things that you read a program book of you know how this beethoven sonata integrates all the struggles of of, yeah, of yeah. the human soil mm-hmm. and uh, soul and and all the political events of his time and then you sit in a in an extremely um, hermetically closed place with lo- lots of old white people and uh, and that's fine you know but it's just not it just doesn't um it doesn't really play out the the role that we project into the music and that is certainly in the in a bit of sonata uh, it doesn't really play out in the way it is, you know, placed in society and all yeah, that. I, I think but that's, that's a whole other thing. Definitely true. I mean, the way classical music is presented, it puts forward a very um, political statement by the fact that we're all dressed in these codes and that we're all very... Uh, it, it's a lot of message that lies there we don't think about. Yeah, and it, it's also fundamentally an escapist thing. Like, it's not some... People don't go to classical concerts to become agitated or, or get a... a have this sort of political feel to it like the way people would go to certain underground concerts or something no, no. but you go to it the same way like you would go to the new spider-man movie yeah the same way you go to yeah. Mahler fifth yeah kind of okay <laughs> <laughs> great okay spider-man and man okay yeah i think it's a great quandary i think we we have to like always these things um i think i have to read a book i think that's my yeah. the feeling that i have go read a book let's go, read, go books. read a book okay i have um because i've been kind of solely keeping alive this whole segment of our mm-hmm. like my person mm-hmm. of the week basically of classical music and i have chosen a new year's person my new year's person this year encapsulates also all the issues we've been talking about both what is classical music as a genre and and uh, political statements how we do our concerts and everything so he is i think he's a great new year's person in terms of of that the only thing it doesn't relate to is the blockchain okay but uh, mr andre rieu is of course uh, <laughs> he really quite... he really doesn't relate to the blockchain no he does not <laughs> no possible but he relates to a lot of other things he's going to be my person just because of the year because i'm always when you sit and talk to classical musicians andre rieu seems to be like a universal often almost like a hate object mm. or like a, just the embodiment of bad taste mm. in some some way and that is just it seems to be there's never any discourse on that. Like people just accept that. Yeah, he's epic, you know. He's really epic. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. just listen to this, yeah. okay? So uh, of course, uh, Andre Rieu, he studied in Brussels and he finished studying there. His dad was a, a conductor of the Maastricht uh, Symphony Orchestra, where he still lives, uh, Andre Rieu. And uh, very quickly, just the last year when he was studying, he played some. This is how he says himself in some interview. 
He played a waltz in a concert and he was so curious how good people responded to the waltz. Everybody was like happy and, and he, he got better applause than ever before. So then he decided, yeah, okay, that seems clever. I'm going to go for that. So he did yeah. more than anyone else I've, I've ever encountered. And he started just first, he had something called André Rieu Salon Orchestra or Maastricht Salon Orchestra with like 15 people. Yeah. Now he employs the, um, since 1988, he employs the Richard Strauss, uh, <laughs> now Johann Strauss, <laughs> Richard Strauss, <laughs> Johann Strauss, uh, symph- like orchestra. And they employ between 80 and 150 musicians, depending where they are. It's an incredible enterprise. It's an incredible enterprise. They go on these insane tours, which uh, during the the first half of 2009, André Rieu was the world's most successful male touring artist of any genre, according to the Billboard magazine. That's insane. He has done a total of 49 recordings, including titles like You Raise Me Up, Song for My Mom, My African Dream, and The Waltz Goes On. Very fun. Okay, so I, I watched a few interviews, and there are some very interesting things. If you Have you ever seen uh, André Rieu concert on, a, on YouTube or live? Just like small snippets. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you take away from the like, style? How would you describe how, how he does? Well, he's just, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> what to say i mean yeah he has this it's it's i think it seems extremely choreographed and nothing everything's very very designed in a in a in a way how you know how the whole show goes on and how it uh his his moves and and the whole orchestra how it's set up it uh it seems highly designed from what from, from what i've seen but i've only seen small snippets so i don't know i mean one thing you see for very quickly are the dresses of the women right Right, many bright colors, and then also you have. I don't know if you noticed, but he has often these huge stage sets, yeah, that he builds up in the back. I mean, once they wait on, went on uh, in 2008, they went on a tour featuring a full size reproduction of Empress Sissi's castle, the biggest Mm. stage set ever to go on tour at the time, Yeah. yeah. And this stuff, and here comes the cool stuff the dresses, the stage design, everything. You know who makes that? André Rieu. Fuck, he does like a whole thing. Yeah, he does the whole thing. And uh, he he produces yeah, he's a, all he's his own gesamt. recordings. He does yeah. everything himself. He is extreme, like, uh, extremely concerned with the arrangements and things like yeah. that. He does. Yeah. He's very involved in every aspect, even the tour planning. He's extremely Im- impressive. I've um, met a guy who did, who was part of a company that did, um, like what you said in the beginning, you, he, 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 he all started out with him noticing how audience reacted to a certain piece of music. And it, that goes through his whole shows and, and he, he engages a whole, he creates of a sub-company where he's the main shareholder that analyzes every minute of his shows and like has all these cameras in the audience and stuff yeah. and just notices exactly when people are, you know, not losing attention and stuff. And he's extremely, <laughs> he's like, he's like totally, totally anal about um, every aspect of it. And then we'll try to optimize the show all the time so that people are just in this constant flow of, um, of ecstasy. Um, and, and he really managed to find his audience with this. Like, and these are mostly, you know, older women, but um but he he's utterly successful, and obviously you can. There's maybe not the, quite the right approach to to art, but uh, you cannot deny his extreme yeah care for, for for all the aspects, and it's really like Gesamtkunstwerk what he does in his way. Exactly, yeah, it really is. And and here comes what is interesting when you talk start talking about and and if this is good or bad art, and all of that really 
doesn't really matter. I mean, as for instance, me as a uh, as a classical nerd, for me to start judging a different genre, maybe like uh, like a circus act or or something like this, would be very would be very strange. I one thing that would really matter highly is is the amount of kind of handcraftness that goes into it, and he crafts Andre Rio crafts every tiny bit of message that comes out of this his shows extremely extremely carefully and it's so profiled that it's very hard to know if there is like yes when you look at the the show in like on on youtube you can find these huge these videos of these shows with the sets and these huge like uh, light um, chandeliers hanging like m- many 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 of them because of course there's tens of thousands of people in these stadiums that he plays and Every tiny bit is so uh, crafted towards this one specific message that he wants to to project that it's very hard then to know if there is a tone of irony here or not. And also when you see him in interviews, it's hard to know if what he says is actually serious or not. Right. And this is beautiful. He, he, he may be the greatest artist of all time that's just is, uh, totally uh, messing with us. Like. No, but, it, it, <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't way. have to even be. I think just the edge, the fact that the edge is there is is uh, something that that other people like these Deutsche Grammophon productions that does this yeah, cheesy yeah. things that would fall into the same category they don't manage to hit this note of because they exactly. don't just yeah. care enough I, it seems that he cares so much yeah. about this music there's an interview yeah. where he talks about he's doing some uh, cooperation song with some singer and it's like oh then i play this line and of the song and he's like da, 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 da. and then they come in there and oh it's so beautiful and then he will really mm-hmm. seem to be into it and the song he's talking about is like autumn leaves. I mean, it's, it's just it's not cosmetic. It's the whole thing. Exactly. The whole thing. That's 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 his what he does and and declined through every every possible permutation of 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 everything in the show. And that's beautiful. I think that's really uh, to to the extent of somebody doing that. I think that's really uh, very powerful. No matter what you do, if you care so much, it's um, yeah. I think one can up- applaud it. Okay, I have a final. Before wrapping up, a final um, question of the year. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> question. Uh, no, but I, I read a book, and this is a, a questionable guy because I, uh, he endorsed Trump and everything, and he's really weird. You know, you heard of Peter Thiel? He's, uh, he's one of the uh, PayPal founders and went on to... He's like a very early investor in Facebook and uh, founded a, f- a founder of Palantir and many like he's a Silicon Valley billionaire, very, very smart guy. And I always uh, enjoyed his talks whenever I could see anything on, it, on the Internet. Um, he brought out this book called Zero to One. He says several interesting stuff in there. But one question that really was influential on me because I had it in the back, back of, of the mind for some time now because I sense that in a world that is so dominated by competition and by so much you know input and so much out there that's really hard to find one's path or find a new opening to do something new so his um his question that I think is very interesting and for me kind of the question of the year in terms of um what to invest in and what to be um yeah what to focus on is his so-called contrarian question because he considers himself a contrarian, so somebody who is trying to think, you know, contrarian to um, common myth and opinion. So his question is, quote, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And that seems like an easy question, but it's a super hard one to answer. 
that whenever you have an answer to that question, that's where an, an opening and that's where a, a, a niche is there you can actually go for, that you can go for. Um, so I think that that's that's super super interesting. For example, I think it's an I think it's a very very fundamental important truth that people are actually in for it for unique experiences and that we are actually in the business of creating unique experiences and not in the business of um, you know the star and repertoire rat race because both of these things are is a is a sort of a race to the bottom and that's something very few people would agree with me on you would maybe but uh, very few most people would think it's important to do repertoire and it's important to have stars in order to be successful for example as a festival so that's one thing and that I, I think is a contrarian truth for me it's really only about creating exceptional experiences and then uh, and that's where an opening is and that's where what we've been growing on so stuff like that other things like what we've been trying with Henry now it's not important to have a full catalog of streaming stuff it's maybe more important to have a really curated um, experience and uh, a sort of a almost yeah a, a radical a reduction of complexity that's maybe something more people would agree on but um, it, I think it's interesting in in one's life to think about the things what are that important truths that are that very few people uh, agree with with, with with you on and that's um probably a, a place you should go to then but it, it's hard i was trying to come up with it i think it's very very hard to find or to formulate it's yeah. very hard that, that's why it's that's why it's a super hard question even though it seems straightforward if you just, just read it out loud but it's it's super hard to find the thing that you really believe in and most people would disagree but um as far as you find such a thing, I, I, it seems that that's always a, some, at least an interesting, an interesting field to go into because um, it means that you are really convinced of something uh, that most people have not understood yet, sort of, and that uh, probably means there's a way to go because just going the same direction as everyone and sort of stating the obvious is um, you get into this very very competitive environment that is really hard to um to be successful so this in. is a great uh, great uh, closure for us with uh, with uh, giving our listeners and ourselves a way to to build some new year's resolutions that are more more absolutely rich and more meaningful yeah so build your own contrarian uh, new year's resolutions and let's make it let's make it great again uh, as as donald t would say I have a, a New Year's um, recommendation, and this is the U.S. Army Band that was featured in our very first episode. They just made a holiday video, and uh, it's the if you go on YouTube, you'll find it under U.S. Army Band's 2016 Holiday Festival. And this is brilliant for the exact same reason that um, André Rieu is. When you look at the two shows next to each other, they look extremely similar. There's placed extremely much focus on the set design and the choreography and everybody's costume is, is very choreographed. And the whole show is very much made in the same way. The music is exactly the same. But instead of all the, the girls in these gown dresses and, and uh, stuff, instead you have these very strict like young military guys who are like have shaved heads and are very like somber looking, but they produce exactly the same kind of outcome. And again, it hits the note that David Garrett and, and uh, Deutsche Grammophon often 
fails to hit, which is a level of seriousness where it becomes double, which I, I do enjoy very much. Where you don't know if you're looking at the sketch or if you're looking at the real deal. And you don't really want to know either because it would make the world a less marvelous place. <laughs> I, I, I do not have a recommendation of week, but I, I follow your recommendation as always. And I do recommend you guys to please uh, keep at it in the new year with the Super TV Music Podcast. We'll keep it keep it rolling and thank you everyone so much for listening and your attention and uh, your emails and your facebook posts uh, keep keep doing that we love to hear from you guys and first of all have a happy and successful and uh, prosperous and, and peaceful new year 2017 prosperous yes absolutely take care of you ciao, merry ciao. christmas and a happy new year everyone